the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred Not to Say podcast, and my expertise on the show is no-budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I love classic cinema, international film, and especially lost movies, and I'm currently going through a recap of all the Disney shorts, which is delightful. Hello there. My name is Andreas. Uh, I am the creator and one of the head writers over at Films Fatale. Um... I love art house cinema, international cinema, a little bit of everything in between. And it's uh, finally that time again. Um, it's time for a cinematic smorgasbord, which we usually have in the first week of the month. Um, unfortunately, we had to push it because uh, the Toronto International Film Festival waits for no one. So uh, now that that's done, I can get back to... Uh, handling things a little bit more usually so what is the norm you might be asking if you're a brand new listener well what you've stumbled upon here is called the cinematic smorgasbord episode of films fatale what we do is we explore films that we have never seen before so we've gone over the various tastes that we have um you know we're all quite different but there's a lot of crossover appeal with what we like so what we're gonna do so what we do in each episode is we recommend a film that another person has never seen and we tally our results. Furthermore, we also all watch a film that all three of us have never seen before. And uh, we cover that in the second portion of the episode. So uh, what did we handle in this particular episode, you might ask? Since Sofia Coppola is back in the headlines because of her upcoming film Priscilla, which made a huge splash in Venice, um, I thought it was important to maybe go back to her one of her previous times that she basically took the, the Venice Film Festival by storm with her Golden Lion winning film somewhere. So we'll find out what we thought about that film centered around Minutia in the second half. But first, we're going to get into our individual assignments where we were each recommended a film, and we'll see how that went. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay, what were you recommended by whom, and how was it? Well, Mr. Three-Hour Movies recommended me Barry Lyndon, which is Stanley Kubrick's huge, huge period piece. It is meticulously planned, it is beautifully crafted, and it is huge. Just You can see every cent of that budget on screen. And it's the story of a ne'er-do-well, we'll call him, named Barry Lyndon, based on a Thackeray novel, because Kubrick couldn't adapt Vanity Fair yet. And so um, Barry Lyndon joins the army, he becomes a scammer, he marries rich, he gets into all kinds of escapades, and eventually it all comes back to bite him, but I guess you'll have to find out how. And mostly, it's the sumptuousness of this movie that gets attention. It has somewhat of a reputation for being a stodgy period piece. I don't think it quite hits that, though it drags on occasion because it is quite long. But it really is kind of mesmerizing because he does all kinds of cool things with cinematography. Like, a lot of the film was made without electric lights, and so they were relying on candlelight, so that was a really big new innovation. And the costumes are perfect. It's Kubrick's exacting nature fully on board. And the movie is a little indulgent, I would say, but also it is really worth watching just for the sort of spectacle of it all. And I don't mean that in the sense of a ton of activity at once. I just mean that every shot is rich. 
Yeah, self-indulgent is interesting because, you know, on paper that might sound like a vice for a film, but in a and Barry Lyndon specifically, you know, you're dealing with somebody who bites off more than they can chew with the um the titular character Redmond Barry and how he works his way up in the ranks of uh, of hierarchy in um you know, in the upper class uh of the I believe the Rococo era. Um so it's this idea of how far can we close? How how closely can we fly to the sun before our wings burn off in Icarus fashion? Yeah, so it suits the film, and I I mean it is very bloated, but I think it should be. Yeah, it, it's almost like it promotes the um, you know if the the acting itself is very minimal and as bare bones as possible, you get the sense of. Redmond Barry's ego, perhaps through what you see and what you feel, as opposed to how you interpret the acting, let's say. I think if a person were a fan of The Favorite, they would enjoy this film. It's very much the same vibe. Not just with the period, but the sumptuousness, I mean. Yeah, like, there are pure piece films that don't like to play by the rules, and those are some of my favorite, like The Favorite, but there's also something like a Scorsese's Age of Innocence, which is a little bit more orthodox, but still not merchant ivory by nature and by any sense mm-hmm. or the lion winter which is fantastic yeah that's another great one but anyway it was definitely well worth the experience and i would say it's a film you've really got to devote yourself to watching you can't just like randomly throw it on while you're doing chores but it's a film worth checking out if you've got a spare afternoon now, Stanley Kubrick is often um, equated with being like a frigid, calculated, cold sort of director who doesn't understand human emotions. How do you feel about the emotional element of this film? Because I personally think it's one of his most bittersweet and gut-wrenching. I'd agree. It's a very deeply personal film in a sense that I think you don't see as often from Kubrick. And... Um, by which I mean sort of the personality of the character is very deeply explored. It's not just a vehicle. And yeah, I would say, I would say it's reasonably warm for Kubrick's career, but it's also playing on his technical side. Absolutely. James, did you get around to seeing this one at all? Unfortunately, no, I didn't have time. Uh, But I do have a fun fact about the cinematography for this movie. I think I know what it is, but let's hear it. (laughs) So Rachel mentioned that uh, there's much use of candlelight since there is obviously no electric lights. And obviously, you know, there's going to be natural lighting all over the place. The reason and I've, I've seen clips of it, but the reason he was able to get such clean shots regardless of the lighting was because he got lenses from NASA to pull it off. That's very sweet. Yeah, they invented new like camera recording technology specifically for this movie, which is Pretty much, like, I think I would consider it the best-looking film I've ever seen. Yeah. It really is a landmark film, but kind of an overlooked one. It's getting its dues now. I think maybe about 20 years ago, it was, like, one of the more overlooked Kubrick films. But now a lot of people consider it his best. So I think it's it's coming around for sure. I hope so. Yeah. What about you, James? What were you recommended? And uh, by whom? And tell us a little bit about it. In true Rachel fashion, she gave me something from the classic era. She gave me David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. And what'd you think? I thought this was a really well done film. It you know, the acting was great, just for a technical aspect, it was great. 
I think one of the things I appreciated most about it was it was a time when, you know, shooting a war movie, it was the audience could be the audience observing because a lot of modern war films nowadays try to put you in like all this action and make it feels like they're there. But this one you actually got to kind of observe, but it's kind of a different war film than most people would think of because it uses the historical setting of the construction of the Burma railway during world war two, when British soldiers were you know prisoners of war to the Japanese. And I think it's stories like this are important because when people think war, they think kind of like all the explosions and mayhem that goes on the battlefield. But no, there's a lot of side stories of like kind of regular things that are happening. Like the whole th- thing is about constructing this railway that's supposed to be done in a certain amount of time. And then there's just kind of like, you know, you see the conflict between, you know, the Japanese and the British soldiers. Cause you know, one, they, they don't want to be doing this. And two, uh, you find out like the way they've been approaching is all wrong. And kind of by the end of it, you kind of get this really strange kinship and collaboration between the two camps towards the end, but it also, it kind of gets derailed towards the end. I'm not going to explain it because it's actually a really great development of the story, but yeah, I, um, also I think this was the probably, I think, my second David Lean film, because I think the other one was one that you recommended. Was it Summertime? Yeah, Summertime. I think I gave that one to Andreas a while ago. Yes, but this uh, this film's a lot more in your typical David Lean sort of canon when it comes to like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Bridge on the River Kwai. It makes up the big three. Big and epic and full of characters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It, w- it was interesting because it was like it was a war movie, but it had like all the kind of charm that you get with that era. Like because like some of the like some of these characters, it's like, you know, as serious as they are, it's like, you know, there there's very much kind of like kind of tongue in cheek personalities going on all at the same time. Also, like I'm noticing he's really good with color. Mm-hmm. There was something about this that was just like so crisp. Like e- even if it was like nighttime stuff, it was just such a it's very such a clean view. But yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it also I think aged very well from like a technical aspect because it's like not a single frame is wasted and it's like you can't really call it boring even if it's subtle moments that are like maybe supposed to be boring it still kind of keeps your attention and honestly it's like I didn't even really notice the runtime because this is almost like I think it's like two hours and forty minutes or something like that. No, but it actually moves quite efficiently. Um, yeah, David Lean really was sort of a technician's director, if if I can put it that way. Um, he started out as an editor, and Catherine Hepburn always said that the best director she'd ever worked with started out as editors, and I think that she's got a point where it comes to David Lean. Yeah, you know, that makes so much sense, you having said that, because it's like, yeah, this, you know, it's, yeah, it's a very technical film, but it's still very captivating in a cinematic sense, just like, mm-hmm. just as a movie. Yeah. Also, you will always have that whistled song stuck in your head. If not from The Simpsons. That's true. But yeah, uh, so was it a good pick? Oh yeah, definitely. I always look forward to your picks because it's like you 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 have like encyclopedic knowledge of an era that I haven't really gotten a chance to dive into. So it's like every single thing you've recommended has always been really interesting. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, Bridge on the River Kwai is, is a tremendous film. I feel like uh, I, I personally prefer... Um, or to Arabia and maybe Brief Encounter, but it would be like a close third for me. But in general, I feel like in the same way that Barry Lyndon is rising up in the ranks of people's favorite Kubrick films, um, I feel like Bridge on the River Kwai is rising up in the ranks of favorite David Lean films for a lot of people. A lot of people nowadays prefer it to Lawrence of Arabia, and I think maybe it's because 
it's got a wider scale as to who it's focused on as opposed to um, T.E. Lawrence specifically, let's say, for four hours. But um, Bridge in the River Kwai, I think, is amazing. If all of Lawrence Arabia is like an analysis as to whether or not this man was a hero or a villain, um, the climactic moment of Bridge of River Kwai, uh, without spoiling it too much, especially with Alec Guinness's iconic line, um, it feels like you get that for a split second where you don't know that that's what this entire film is until the very ending where you're basically pressed to watch it all over again from the beginning. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the performance from Seso Hayakawa. For those not familiar, he started out as a sort of typical heartthrob leading man in Hollywood for the sort of the 10s and 1920s. And then his career sort of died out with the silence. Um, and um, he really got brought back from Bridge on the River Kwai, and he enjoyed uh, great success from that film. I think he even got an Academy Award nomination. And he really does lend great gravity to this character, because this was one of the earliest Western films where Japanese characters in the war were portrayed even remotely sympathetically. And so it's a very interesting thing to look back on now. Yeah. And it was really great that Hayakawa got this extra exposure. Oh, yeah, it was definitely a great performance by him. He was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, a terrific film to to go with for sure. And I hope that inspires you, James, uh, to to keep watching more David Lean films because... Oh, I plan to. There's a lot where that came from. Um, I'm not going to recommend Lawrence of Arabia to you this week uh, just to give you a break from it, but maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. It is four hours, though, so we'll see. Um, otherwise... No, you recommended me something this week, or uh, this month, this year at this rate. Um, so a lot of people may not know that I have a huge affinity for uh, uh, Lisa Lopez, uh, Left Eye, um, hip-hop artist who died tragically in the Honduras. And uh, one of my favorite documentaries uh, in general is The Last Days of Left Eye, which is directed by uh, Lauren Lazen. So, James, you saw fit to recommend... Uh, her previous film, Tupac Resurrection, which is very similar in nature. Um, how come you felt that this was like the right, the right film to recommend? Uh, it's one that I thought to recommend for a while because you had you had brought up the Last Days of Left Eye, and I was like, oh, if he likes that documentary, he's gonna, he's gonna like Tupac Resurrection because it, it kind of it, it's in a similar vein, but I think it's you know the Last Days of Left Eye is more of a focused. It's a specific, you know, it's it's her last days. That's the main focus. But, you know, Tupac one kind of encapsulates, like, you know, his lifetime. So I thought it might be interesting for you to see, especially because of, you know, how long it's been. I think it's what, I think this is the 27th anniversary of his death. I think it is. Or 28th. 27th, 28th. No, it's the 27th because it was 96. But yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought you might get a kick out of it. Uh, it also, it's like I, I sometimes I think we sometimes forget that you know documentaries are very important to the history of cinema. So I thought it'd be nice to recommend a documentary for once. Yeah, no, that's fair. And at least th- there was this um, this open portal. And uh, Lauren Lazen was actually uh, nominated for best documentary f- uh, feature for this film. So uh, this one was interesting because with um, uh, Last Days of Left Eye the initial focus was to have this uh, documentary represent why Lisa Lopez was misunderstood 
But then once she passed away, it became a whole different thing. This was made completely in the, uh, the, the spotlight of Tupac's death. And what I find particularly interesting about it um, is it reminded me a lot of the final track on um, To Pip a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar, uh, Mortal Man, where uh, Kendrick effectively pieces together a conversation with Tupac as if he's actually there. Uh, through recorded footage and i thought that that was nuts that he was able to do that but basically what lauren lanson does with this entire film is have him narrate the entire thing as if he's still alive and you know i don't have it i'm not going to put any credence into the whole tupac shakur still alive conspiracy but it's kind of hard not to think that he is despite the fact that you can hear the uh, audible splicing of of words to get him to say what he needs to say because literally two hours of narration of his own documentary comes from past footage. I completely don't even understand where they could have found all these sound bites. Oh yeah. They had this whole, uh, they, they pretty much went through like any archive they could find with all this stuff. And that's another reason why I picked it because they pieced together this whole story. It's not like your average documentary where it's like you have different subjects. It's like, no, this is, he. they take these archive of stuff and have them, it's they have him tell his own story and it's just like archive footage of the people around him like i don't think there's like really any i don't think any new footage was shot from it it's all archive so it's like they piece together this whole thing where it's like you know and and just how they detail the story it's weird because it's not it sounds like he's just like they brought him in to narrate it like it's done so well for him to just narrate like his entire history yeah i don't know it was just like i remember when i first saw it i was like you know i was like how how does one think to put this together and how do you pull this off like that? Yeah. If uh last days of left eye was like a spiritual journey into a pop star that people misunderstood. Uh, this is more like a, like a bare bones essay or a thesis on a hip hop star who was similarly also misconstrued um, be it because of uh, his lyrics or um, any possible scandals that the film wished Uh, wishes to kind of shed some light on and provide perspective with um that's like the one thing where i feel like with left eye you can't really have it slanted from one point of view because of the nature of the film but with this this is very much in favor of tupac sugar for better or for worse but uh reflecting more on the the better elements of of that sort of um commentary i think it's almost crucial to anybody who has like a stereotypical viewpoint of hip hop that it's dangerous, that it's uh, that it's unfit, that it's lazy, uninspired to watch something like this because of the incredible upbringing that that Tupac has and how much he has this affinity for you know art and poetry and and spoken word and cinema. You know that he also starred in a couple of films like Poetic Justice. Um, all these things when it came to artistry came first and the politics came second once he realized that nobody was listening at any other capacity. So I think it's so, um, it's, it's so wide in scale when it comes to just how many things it's trying to cover, particularly with a figure that was erroneously, um misconstrued as being only a violent person associated with with gang culture oh yeah and i i think the main thing that, that a lot of people kind of take away from his life is like 
the the two main things were like the desire to live his art and the certain people he surrounded with at the end and that and that was really what did him in but to go back to the whole like you know how just his involvement in the arts in general fun fact tupac was george lucas's first pick for mace windu when he was first coming up with episode one and he unfortunately passed before he could move forward with the uh working on it yeah i recall that 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 would have been unreal like just to see how many things he could have been a, a part of like how many different filmic journeys um because he was in two films he was in poetic justice and what's the other one? Oh, he was in more than two he did like six movies before he passed oh yeah but there were there were like two really big ones so yeah poetic justice was one of them juice was a big one juice okay Right. Um and then there and then there was like uh, three or four other ones that he had done. Yeah, it's a a tragic turn. Um I feel like the tone of the documentary is very typical but at the same time it's the the technical aspect of accumulating all this footage making it sound like all of this compiled audible footage of him sounded like it was in one sit down recording and not from 50 different sources. I think that reason alone, Tupac resurrection, which is a very fitting title. I know it's like an album that he did uh, either. I think posthumously it was released. No, I think. There, there was a soundtrack for it that was released that had was like a compilation of stuff. And then like a few tracks that were remixed. From okay. Okay, that's what it is. But it's a very fitting title given the uh, the nature of how they go about this subject. And it's also the 20th anniversary of the film. Yep, there you go. So, uh solid choice and I feel like um very fitting uh given how much I adore the uh the left eye doc. So thanks for that. Now, uh because, you know, I was given a documentary and the two of you had films that were like uh, over three hours of average length. Um, it felt fitting to go with something a little bit more minimalist, a little, a little more sublime, but also a hell of a lot shorter. And so the collective pick that we had this week is uh, Subware by Sofia Coppola, a film that was kind of ignored when it first came out outside of its uh, Venice win of the Golden Lion, but has kind of worked its way up the ranks when it comes to uh, how people view Sofia Coppola's filmography in general, which is kind of fitting because isn't that like basically all of her films outside of Lost in Translation? So um, yeah, what did we all think? She somehow managed to make a movie that was completely full and completely empty. That's the perfect way to describe it. That's a good way to go about it. Yeah. It's like Fellini borderline surreal imagery of excess and luxury, but at the same time, what an empty void that this entire film is. I really appreciated that they avoided the kind of typical contentious relationship between father and daughter that you see in a lot of movies. Because this one, it's like, oh, they have a great relationship. The whole thing is just like, and which doesn't even happen until like halfway through the movie. It's like, he's kind of watching her before camp because mom decides she needs a break. And then they just kind of be, takes her along on his adventures and they have a good time. And it's kind of, you know, also interesting to see this kind of snapshot of someone who's clearly like, he's a Hollywood star, but he's kind of bored. I think he's depressed. I think the whole movie's depressed. Like, you just feel so blank watching it that it's like, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, like uh, his brain is somewhere else. And I honestly feel like that's where the title of the film comes in. It's like, uh, where's the life of this film? It's somewhere, somewhere else. It's just not here. I think it's so fitting. So um, to give some brief context, uh, Stephen Dorff plays uh, a celebrity who is living the high life, uh, but at the same time has like this Bojack Horseman sort of complex where he's indulging in a lot of... uh, terrible addictions particularly like uh fetishization and sexuality um when his daughter played by a then very young Elle Fanning but at this point I feel like she's just always been young like she's only 25 um 12 when this film was made um yep gets dropped on her doorstep uh or gets dropped on his doorstep and Basically, they have to try to make the most of it. And sometimes they have a bit of fun, you know, playing guitar here and stuff. Sometimes uh, they both get engulfed by the uh, ennui, the minutiae of existence of life, whether you're a wide-eyed kid or an adult who feels like you've been there, done that, and there's nothing left to explore. Yeah, overall, I thought it was a... I don't know, it's a unique watch. I think think it's something you kind of have to prepare people for if you're not into this kind of cinema already. Also, I do think, like, the approach was interesting, but I do think that Terrence Malick kind of upped the ante on this concept when he did Night of Cups. Yeah, I, I, I have seen Night of Cups. Night of Cups is a little bit more, let's say, devastating, and I feel like the stakes are a little bit higher. This is and Sofia Coppola's typical sublime. I mean, I always use sublime to describe her films, but it is it's it's sublime where um, she festers in the bittersweet. Let's say, yeah, bittersweet's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, how do we feel about this film winning, like, let's say, the, the top prize at Venice Film Festival? Because there was some controversy where people feel like uh, Tarantino, the jury head, kind of put an in on this film because he used to date Sofia Coppola and they're still on good terms. I seriously doubt he'd be that unprofessional, but like, um, I don't know. I think this movie was very innovative in a quiet way. I think it has a lot of merit. It's interesting because I feel like her father, obviously, Francis Ford Coppola, the more successful he got, the more he was interested in um, going bigger or going home. Like, so, you know, you made made The Godfather, Godfather 2. after after that, the next big project was Apocalypse Now, which was freaking ginormous, the biggest budget for its time. But then here, after the the success of um, of Lost in Translation, and I know that uh, Marie Antoinette was a bit of a bust for its time, and it's like kind of held in a higher regard now. But still, the the appropriate answer for her wasn't to. Uh, to try again on a large scale or anything. It was more, let's make the barest film that I can make. Exactly. And I think she did a really good job. Oh yeah. She de- She definitely pulled this off. And I don't think, I think the win was appropriate. I mean, kind of looking at the list of the selections from that festival, uh, you know, uh, Black Swan was also in the festival, so maybe I don't know if I think I, you know, I like that film much more than this film. But yeah, I don't know. I, it seems like a it seems like a festival pick. Also, twenty ten was such a good year. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, twenty ten is I, I don't care what anyone says. One of the best years in film. Period. Yeah, I 
obviously prefer Black Swan as well, but as much as I adore Black Swan and it's one of my favorite films of the decade, Summer feels like a festival winning film. It's Black Swan is incredible, but you can equate it to The Red Shoes and you can equate it to Perfect Blue uh, by Satoshi Kon. Somewhere is idiosyncratic and I feel like that makes it kind of a more interesting one even if it's not necessarily my own personal favorite of the bunch you know and, and it's like I, th- I think the chips are usually stacked against Sofia Coppola because like because of her dad she dated Quentin Tarantino she was with Spike Jones it's she's around her her entire life has been like I don't want to say in the shadow of very significant men in the industry but I think she definitely does a good job of holding her own and proving to people like she earns her spot where she is and I think she blazed a lot of trails in that regard, even though it wasn't so long ago. This uh, opinion might get me killed one day, and if this is how I go, so be it. Um, her dad has, at his peak, has the better films, but if we're being very honest, I think she's the more consistent, steady filmmaker with a stronger filmography. Like some of the stuff that her dad's done, she's never gotten close to that. Let's say, and like. I don't like as much as I adore Lost in Translation. I think it's a masterpiece. It might not be like Godfather Two, but he made like four Titanic films. I feel like her career. I'm always interested into seeing what she's going to make next because I I don't think I'm ever going to be let down. Megapolis. I don't even know. Like we'll have to see. I don't know. I hope it's good. I hope so too. Yeah, yeah it was a good and I think a really thoughtful pick for all of us. So that was somewhere. Um, it sounds like it was a bit of a success and uh, an overlooked film in Sofia Coppola's career, which is um, kind of getting kind of getting its dues nowadays. And if you watched it at home, let us know what you think. If you haven't, give it a shot. It's hour and a half. Can't 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 do any wrong with that. So um, we are now going into what I think it's safe to say is. Uh, our favorite part of the episode where we get to recommend new films because like all set of files, we just can't stop watching stuff. But before we do that, uh, we would love to give you our address and deets. Right. So we are on Facebook and Instagram under the K cut and follow us to find out what we're watching. Next. All right. So um, now we are getting into our recommendations for our next episode whenever that might drop because i guess this one was so delayed we'll have to figure that out uh off off air i guess um i believe it's james's turn to do the overall pick uh but we'll save that for last who wants to go for their individual pick first i'd like to hear mine Ooh, all righty so I was trying to figure out what to pick. And mind you, this this is still on my list of things that were, you know, planned far in advance. But I decided to go with Lars von Trier's Europa. Okay. And this is part of the Europe trilogy, his first three features, uh, before he became absolutely unhinged in his creative works. Yes. They're very stylish and the stories are very straightforward. But this one has a lot of really interesting cinematic technique that I think you'll appreciate. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not the biggest fan of Ontario, but I'm always up for a new film. I do recommend, I, I think that I've seen, 
of of the three in his Europe trilogy, I've seen Element of Crime and I've seen this one. I haven't seen Epidemic yet, but Criterion's doing the whole, you know, they released the whole Europe trilogy, so I can't wait to dive into that. But yeah, no, these ones, I think if you're not into his usual stuff, I think this, these are ones that you can kind of watch and enjoy because they're, they're not as, I don't know. Yeah, they're they're not like as much him as his other films. That's good to know. Cool. Well, what am I going to be watching? So you like Jimmy Stewart, right? Everybody does, right? Of course. Who doesn't love Jimmy Stewart? He's one of the greats. Okay. Well, the Civil War, it's the 1860s, and it's happening in the U.S., and Jimmy Stewart just wants to run his farm. So you are going to watch the movie Shenandoah, which is a very interesting thing uh, text to discuss. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I don't even think I've ever... What is it called? I don't think I've heard of this. Shenandoah, like the river. Oh, Oh, okay. Shenandoah, I long to hear you. You know that one? I would do the response, but I think I'd break everyone's ears. So I do. You're going to know that song by the end of the movie. So uh, (laughs) have fun. That that sounds good to me. Uh, Fantastic. Thanks for that. I can never say no to Jimmy Stewart, unless it's the greatest show on earth. That is, yeah. Moving on. Um, James, I, in all honesty, would you be okay with a longer film, or would you prefer something a little bit more moderate, like maybe two hours? Okay, let me just double check the length of this one, just to be safe. They're both by the same director, so... Uh, okay, so... If you were going to say longer, I would have said Nashville by um, uh, the great Robert Altman. Because you haven't seen anything by Robert Altman, right? Correct. Okay. Well, instead, I'm going to go with something that's two hours. Because Nashville is is three hours, but I can't recommend it enough. Uh, We're going to go with something two hours, which is very much in the vein of his films. And this film actually has the i think the most amount of cameo appearances in any film ever if not it it for sure is up there is it the player uh, it is the player you haven't seen it yet have you i have not but when you said cameo appearances i was like oh it's got to be the player i've been meaning to watch altman i just haven't sat down because i you know i know it's like he so many of his films are cited as being some of the greatest of all time yeah, the player is amazing. So you're looking at like uh, like a satire, but also like a neo-noir that takes place in Hollywood. Um, and he really is one of the most maverick-like filmmakers in existence. So even if he doesn't necessarily have the budget of an indie filmmaker, not in all of his films, but certainly in some, uh, he still boasts that mentality, even with like, let's say, a huge budget or with a massive cast. So um, even though the cast is huge here, you're mostly looking at actors like um, Tim Robbins, uh, Whoopi Goldberg's in this quite prominently, Vincent D'Onofrio. But we could go through the massive cameo list. What we could say is that for the actual follow-up episode. So nonetheless, um, the player, very meta, very self-aware, hilarious, but also quite scathing when it comes to the Hollywood experience. That leaves us with one more pick. 
So, uh, James, and please be kind, what are all three of us watching and why? All right. So, you know, I had to keep it interesting this time. Uh, And I'm probably going to pick probably the wildest film I've picked since Sergeant Kabuki Man. Oh, no. See, this is what I was worried about. We're going to watch Lloyd Kaufman's Tromeo and Juliet, which is a trauma version of Romeo and Juliet, and also the screenwriting debut of James Gunn, who co-wrote the screenplay. Okay. So, what is this? Tromeo, like, Tromeo and Juliet, I, I'm assuming is an adaptation, but give us, give, us, give us some details. What are we in for? So, it's... <laughs> What I'm reading is it's a loose adaptation of the play, and it just has just a lot of the characteristics that are typical in trauma films. Like, you know, like the sexuality, the violence, and just like, just all the stuff, you know, all the wild stuff Lloyd Kaufman likes to put in his movies. Can you define trauma, please? I think it's a made up word because it's just, yeah, it's the name of the company, but there's no actual meaning. I mean, they're often, trauma films are often referred to as like its own genre, but it's like, it's the same company that made Sergeant Kabuki Man. Oh no! Okay, and also like you know, like class like Toxic Avenger, you know that was obviously one of their biggest films. So yeah, just like you know, just really sleazy, just silly stuff. But I, part of the reason I picked it was because James Gunn. This was like his debut, so it's really interesting to see. You know, he started with Lloyd Kaufman, and now he's you know done so much, you know, for Disney and Warner Brothers, which is kind of insane to think because he kind of switched gears because his usual stuff was all sorts of really interesting all aside from like, you know, he wrote like the Scooby-Doo movies and the, you know, Dawn of the dead remake and stuff like that. But like his own movies were always like along the lines of just being kind of wild and crazy. And then, you know, he switched gears with guardians of the galaxy. And now he's like, you know, the front runner to, you know, he, he's the one there, you know, think is going to save DC. And the results he's gotten from his recent movies have been very stellar, you know, the dude's a guy who deserves big budgets. Alrighty, so for uh, our next episode, it sounds like we're going to be watching uh, Shenandoah, The Player, Europa, and Tromeo and Juliet. Uh, I say it every time, you can't get more eclectic than this. Uh, I guess that's a good place to sign off. I thank you so much for listening to The K-Cut. Tune in next episode, you don't know what we're going to be talking about, but it's always going to be something cinema. Um, we are now going into the all-cut.